Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 6, 2023 Monday reading of the Christian Science Monitor. My name is Katie Singleton. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Disband Homeless Camps? Some Cities Rethink Them Instead, written by Patrick Johnson. In Memphis, Hopes and Challenges of Black Middle Class Collide, written by Noah Robertson. Oscar Nominee's Message, Democracy is Worth Fighting For, written by Erica Page. Preserving the Forests, From Ecuador to California, written by Nick Roll. And following up with miscellaneous articles. Today's intro, What Didn't Happen After Northern Ireland Trade Deal, by Simon Motlake, Reporter. The United Kingdom and the European Union recently unveiled a revised rule book for trade in Northern Ireland, which had become a major sticking point in post-Brexit diplomacy. After the UK left the EU in 2020, Northern Ireland remained in the EU's single market for goods and was subject to its laws. This avoided the need for politically sensitive checkpoints on the land border with the Republic of Ireland, but it disrupted trade with the rest of the UK and alarmed unionists who prized close economic and political ties with the British mainland. On February 27th, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, shook hands and hailed their agreement as the best way to keep trade flowing across land and sea borders. It involves sending UK goods into different custom lanes in Northern Ireland depending on their final destination. What was remarkable about this carefully choreographed announcement was what happened next, or rather, what didn't happen. No cries of betrayal from pro-Brexit UK lawmakers, no rancor in European capitals over British backsliding. Even the unionists held fire so they could study the details. I covered UK politics and the chaos and confusion that followed the 2016 referendum, and this feels like a new chapter. It was a newsworthy event that got everyone talking, but it was framed mostly as a technical fix for a bureaucratic problem, not as a call to arms for Brexit partisans. One reason is that Brexit has lost much of its political potency as the UK has had to weather a pandemic, war in Europe, and a cost-of-living crisis. Lawmakers who used to decry the EU as an undemocratic behemoth know that their voters are more interested in gas bills and economic growth. Quote, Brexit is increasingly coming to be seen as an economic and not a cultural issue, Adnan Menon, a professor of European politics at King's College London, told me. That clears the way for better bilateral relations. Mr. Sunak is a pragmatist who wants to move on from Brexit. It won't be easy. The UK and EU still need to negotiate on issues like data sharing and fishing quotas, but there seems to be a new level of trust to build on. Disband homeless camps? Some cities rethink them instead. Many cities are conducting sweeps of homeless encampments, but a new line of thinking suggests a different solution that maintains the dignity of those without homes and doesn't simply move the problem out of sight. Simon. By Patrick Johnson, staff writer, Savannah, Georgia. When Salt Lake City began enforcing an urban camping ban several years ago, hundreds of Utans picked up their belongings and headed toward the Jordan River. For a century, the river has been a trading post, a border, and a nexus of nomadic activity. But most of all, it has been, quote, a place of refuge, says Soren Simonson, executive director of the Jordan River Commission. 
Today, growing numbers of encampments filled with Americans without permanent homes dot the banks of the river, and Mr. Simonson is on the front line of what to do about it. A decade ago, Utah claimed it had largely, quote, solved homelessness, reducing it by 91%. Now it is considering an idea, supported by Mr. Simonson, that is gaining traction across the United States, outlawing unsanctioned camping and instead creating government-sanctioned tent encampments as stepping stones for those without homes to find more permanent housing. For much of the recent past, one assumption in addressing homelessness has been that everyone wants a solid roof. The debate over encampments is shifting those assumptions. Increasingly, cities and states are exploring whether there can be a sense of dignity and agency in, quote, safe outside spaces as an end in themselves. As some carry out sweeps to clear out encampments, others are experimenting with the idea of making them more humane, hygienic, and livable as one potential part of the solution to the housing crisis. Quote, I get that civilization has progressed and we've become people that live in cities, but why does civilization have to be one way or one thing, says Mr. Simonson. Quote, can't we make space for people that aren't ready, aren't capable, aren't interested in living such a fixed address kind of lifestyle? We can do better than that. The situation in Utah is common across the country. Tent encampments have, quote, definitely become more of a visible issue since the pandemic, exacerbated by a national housing shortage, says Courtney Anderson, an expert on social welfare law at Georgia State University College of Law in Atlanta. Quote, it's a problem that people can see, so they need a solution where they can't see it. Under pressure from voters, officials are taking action. Authorities in Rhode Island cleared an encampment from the steps of the state capitol in December. Washington, D.C. conducts regular camp removals. New York City has conducted hundreds of, quote, sweeps under Mayor Eric Adams. Residents have largely hailed the efforts, but the majority of those effective haven't moved into more permanent housing. The concern is that simply clearing camps can strip people of their agency and dignity. Quote, the rating of camps is really tragic, says Professor Anderson. The more you dehumanize people, the easier it is to do that kind of thing. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled it is unconstitutional to ban sleeping in public if there are no other sleeping options available, and some municipal courts have made similar rulings. But this year, Tennessee made camping away from sanctioned areas a felony. Other states are following suit. The Georgia Senate is considering a bill that would criminalize camping and force municipalities to comply. But the bill would also allow the state to designate areas for sanctioned camps. In Savannah, Georgia, Shirley Walkowitz says the move to criminalize what she is doing, living in her car, quote, just shows that people don't care about me and people like me. But for Rachel Potter, a Savannah college student who also has no home, an option to move into semi-permanent housing, even tents, would be appealing. Quote, a lot of these people out here choose to live in tents. They like it. It's a lifestyle. The Georgia bill is significantly based on the thinking of Judge Glock, a senior fellow at the nonpartisan Cicero Institute. Dr. Glock saw the early potential of, quote, housing first, an Obama-era policy that ended requirements such as drug testing for housing recipients. But he now says the policy has largely failed. An average of five homeless people die on the streets of Los Angeles every day, he says, more than twice as many as a decade ago. Quote, this is a crisis situation, he says. It's about what we can do this month, this year. We can't just sit on our hands until the housing shortage is solved. 
He points to cities such as Austin, Texas, and Portland, Oregon, which are banning makeshift encampments but creating safe spaces for people without homes. Quote, the argument is, if cities are going to allow it, make sure they provide the things you need, sanitation, social services, security, says Dr. Glock. If the cities don't make a conscious decision about where to put them, they are outsourcing that decision to wherever a camp happens to spring up and wherever people are yelling the loudest about it. Birmingham, Alabama has just voted to erect a tiny house village to accomplish many of these goals. For city council member Hunter Williams, the logic is clear. Quote, people have thoughts whether the city should or shouldn't erect camps, whether it's outside the realm of municipal government, he says. But the reality is our fire and rescue and our police and our city jail are already involved at a much greater cost than this program. Quote, we don't have to have tent cities under every overpass in America, and we've all seen some of that, he adds. We can do better than that. Athens answer. Residents in Athens, Georgia, faced that same decision, what to do with the residents of, quote, Cooterville, a large camp under a railroad trestle. Trash, sanitation, and drug use all became issues. But as authorities began to knock down the encampments, the athens Clark County Commission looked at the flip side. If not Cooterville, then where? Two shelters were full, and there was a recognition that not everyone living under the trestle could cope with living in a shelter. Mayor Kelly Gertz has spent most of his life in Athens, much of it as an educator, and he knew students who didn't have a permanent residence. In recent years, he had seen students in line at one of the city's homeless shelters. The pandemic, to him, humanized their problems. Quote, I saw stories about alcohol abuse going up during the pandemic. Those same issues were hitting people with perfectly good roofs over their heads. After a polarized debate, the council deadlocked 4-4 to on whether to give the residents of Cooterville a tent city to move into. Mayor Gertz broke the tie by voting yes. Today, 55 tents are lined up neatly on wooden platforms. Trash is nowhere to be found. Quote, it looks a little like the TV show MASH, says Mayor Gertz. The $5 million investment includes adding crisis beds at a local mental health clinic. Quote, the point was to move people from unstructured camping to a more structured, clean, stable, and healthy environment, says Mayor Gertz. Utah's Mr. Simonson, for one, senses a shift in focus toward a greater responsibility for those who make the banks of the Jordan River their home. Quote, we still have a large vision for an individualistic country where dignity is earned by overcoming obstacles, natural, man-made, and personal, he says. Yet people being rugged and individual are often considered outcasts. It's a complex and very fraught question that's now in the forefront. In Memphis, hopes and challenges of black middle class collide. Tyree Nichols was beaten in Hickory Hill, once a magnet for black middle class families seeking a suburban life. Now it's just hanging on, pointing to the forces that affect such neighborhoods' ability to thrive. Simon by Noah Robertson, staff writer, Memphis, Tennessee. The two Hickory Hills sit on either side of 6100 Winchester Road. On one side is New Direction Christian Church, a ministry central in community organizing. Here, in a building deeded by a closing retailer, 1,000 residents worship each Sunday. On the other side is the Hickory Ridge Mall, once home to 100 stores, but now nearly vacant. Inside, elevator music plays from loudspeakers like a call eternally on hold. The intersection is only a few miles away from Power Center Academy, one of the city's best charter schools, 
and it's only a few miles away from Castlegate Lane, a street surrounded by two-story brick homes, tidy lawns, and cul-de-sacs, now marked by a shrine of flowers. It's where police fatally beat Tyree Nichols. Hickory Hill is a sprawling area in southeast Memphis where middle-class life and managed decline line up on the same block. The contrast, sometimes feeling like two different neighborhoods altogether, speaks to something more systemic. The challenges many black middle-class communities face around the country. The story of Hickory Hill is the story of white flight, black resettlement, disinvestment, and gradual decline. For decades, white residents left their neighborhoods out of a refusal to integrate, and middle-class black residents replaced them in pursuit of lower crime and better schools. This cycle opened up a corridor of transients across South Memphis, where many black families, with less inherited wealth than their white counterparts, uprooted from their old communities but struggled in new soil. Across America, post-white flight areas are known for their instability, but instability can become freefall in Memphis, where the black poverty rate is 26.5% and the government often fails to meet residents' needs. Hence, a Hickory Hill today with a reputation for crime and poverty, but with vastly different outcomes. In some areas, the median income is $91,000. In others, it's $21,600. Mr. Nichols' death portrayed a neighborhood in decline, but Hickory Hill is a neighborhood in transition. It's neither in its heyday, nor as outsiders once nicknamed it, Hickory Hood. The question here, and in many black middle-class communities elsewhere, is whether it can be something else altogether. Quote, if you drive through here, you see evidence of a once flourishing community, says Dr. Stacy Spencer, pastor of New Direction Christian Church. There is a hint of what used to be and the promise of what can be. Eastward Expansion Seventy years ago, Hickory Hill was little more than scattered farmland and cotton fields, but by the 1950s, the Memphis area had entered a post-war building spree. A line of neighborhoods built for manufacturing and warehousing workers began marching farther and farther east. Then it arrived in this corner of Shelby County. The Hickory Ridge Mall opened in 1981. Retailers, grocery stores, and department chains entered formation around it a suburban vanguard of strip malls and a target. Quote, you see this huge explosion, says Wayne Dowdy, a local historian. There was a period of time where everybody wanted to live in Hickory Hill. Meanwhile, the city was incorporating these areas for additional tax revenue. Memphis decided the, quote, key to growth was annexation, says Mr. Dowdy. But many white residents, knowing annexation meant integration, did not want to be a part of Memphis. The city began annexing Hickory Hill in 1987. Residents sued in the neighborhood lost in 1998. White residents fled in an exodus. In the decade before 2003, the black population grew 450%, and the white population fell by half. Such migration patterns were not exclusive to Memphis. White flight drove neighborhood change across America throughout the 1960s, says John Logan, a sociologist at Brown University who studies migration and census data. Since the 1980s, Black, Hispanic, and Asian American growth in the suburbs has outpaced that of white Americans, he says. For many Black families moving into the area, Hickory Hill was an opportunity to enter a thriving middle-class community with better schools and an active retail economy. Quote, For a time, those neighborhoods remain middle class, says Phyllis Betts, a former University of Memphis sociologist who researched the city's neighborhoods, including Hickory Hill. 
Quote, people have good jobs and it seems to have succeeded, and then it doesn't. The decay in Hickory Hill began with the city's failed expansion. Memphis got minimal tax revenue and maximum sprawl. Some 20 miles from City Hall, Hickory Hill received lower quality services than the rest of the city, says Mr. Dowdy. At the same time Hickory Hill was being annexed, the city was also closing thousands of public housing units downtown. The redevelopment project displaced thousands of people, many of whom resettled in the other area of the city with federally subsidized housing, southeast Memphis, in and around Hickory Hill. Quote, when I came in 2001 on the hills of that annexation and that white flight, I was handed a community that was destabilized, says Dr. Spencer. Cycles of transience. The instability seen in Hickory Hill and similar neighborhoods nationwide is partly rooted in the nature of the black middle class itself. Overall, black families, on average, hold more debt and fewer assets than their white counterparts, says Rachel Woldoff, a sociologist at West Virginia University. That means far more income goes to rent or mortgage payments, and finances are more vulnerable to shocks like recessions or the pandemic. In 2000, the upper black middle class, earning above $100,000, rented at the same level as the core white middle class, earning between $50,000 and $99,000. Among the lower black middle class, which makes between $30,000 and $49,000, people rarely work jobs that require a college degree. They are almost just as likely to rent as they are to be homeowners, writes Karen Lacey, a sociologist at the University of Michigan, in an emailed response. Quote, many of the rewards associated with middle-class stability, a safe neighborhood with coveted amenities, quality public schools, job security, are out of reach for this group, writes Professor Lacey. The core of these discrepancies is discrimination. In the post-war era, while subsidy programs like the GI Bill were giving white families a boost into America's suburban middle class, black families were denied the same benefits. Today, black Americans face additional barriers to accessing loans or other capital, says Professor Logan at Brown University. And businesses, especially in a city like Memphis, are prone to follow white residents. Quote, I think they see the demographic shift and they decide, oh, the black folks moving in don't have any money, says Oliette Murray Drabot, a city activist. From these steps, a cycle emerges. White flight encourages black resettlement, but black resettlement leads to disinvestment and transience. From South Memphis to Hickory Hill, neighborhoods have experienced decades of turnover almost in a straight line. Brittany Thornton, Shelby County Commissioner for District 10, which includes South Memphis, regularly watches her constituents migrate along this path, sometimes in search of federally subsidized housing and sometimes, quote, as a launch pad to get out to Collierville, a wealthier neighborhood outside the city limits. It's not uncommon for students in city schools to report moving four to six times in a single year, she says. Quote, as long as people see Hickory Hill as one of many stops that they will make throughout the year because they're just going to float around, then that's going to always disadvantage Hickory Hill, she adds. From Hickory Hill to Hickory Hood. By the early 2000s, columnists in the local newspaper were calling it Hickory Hood, a nickname that summarizes the reputation often attached to post-white flight parts of Memphis. The share of Hickory Hill residents defined as, quote, poor or struggling by the American Community Survey, whose income is less than twice the 2020 poverty level, is 41.2%. That's higher than the county rate of 38.5%, but tracks very widely from 78% to 17.9%.
Of the 90,000 or so residents, more than 83% are black. Quote, people see us and they think it's a bad neighborhood, says Ayanna Watkins, executive director of MICA, an interfaith activist group started by Dr. Spencer. As is true throughout Memphis, Hickory Hill residents often feel like crime is a reputation reinforced by outsiders, yet also still a problem that needs solving. Last year, the neighborhood experienced 717 cases of aggravated assault and 31 murders. Both were double-digit drops from 2021. At the same time, passenger motor vehicle thefts increased 111%, consistent with a city-wide wave of car-related crime. Perceptions can vary widely, depending on where you are in Hickory Hill. Quote, if you live in an apartment community, you think crime is terrible because it is where you live, says Janine Heiner, Director of Operations at Safeways, a city crime reduction group. But if you live in a neighborhood of single-family homes, then your perception isn't going to be as bad. In Memphis, crime orbits low-income apartment complexes, says Ms. Heiner. Those complexes, she says, are disproportionately concentrated in the Hickory Hill area. Crime repels investment, and a lack of investment propels crime. Taped on front doors of the Hickory Ridge Mall are signs that loitering and firearms are prohibited. Cedric Horton, owner of Exclusive Hair Extensions, flashes an electric open sign near the front window. But his store is locked. To enter, customers must first ring a doorbell. Quote, I'm not letting you in until I see who you are, says Mr. Horton, who lives in Olive Branch, about 15 minutes south and across the Mississippi border. Hope of renewal. But Mr. Horton does open the door. A mother and young daughter walk in, listen to the sound of Dr. Dre's still diary from the speakers, and smell the balmy candle lit on his desk. Champagne toast. They walk out with a purchase and a bag carrying his trademarked logo, past a table of business cards advertising other stores in the mall and nearby. Quote, everybody has their own people that come in, says Mr. Horton, who opened his business in the mall last year because of its affordable rent. Scarce foot traffic aside, he says, customers know where to find him from his social media presence. Businesses like his are what some residents hope could bring renewal. Along Winchester Road, there's blight in the mall's empty anchor stores, but there are also local businesses. Some like Seed Fragrance, expanded by redeveloping abandoned buildings. Gestalt Community Schools, which runs the neighborhood charter school, recently purchased an old movie theater, which will be converted into another campus, says Dr. Spencer. The local community development corporation plans to redevelop some 40 acres into affordable housing and retail space. Quote, where other people see trash, we see treasure, he says. There is movement among stakeholders to secure property to secure the narrative. In 2019, MICA held financial summits in areas where incomes are low, but property values are rising, drawing interest from developers. Two took place in Hickory Hill. Quote, it was one of those places where if black and brown people weren't given access to buy property in their own neighborhoods, then outside developers would come in, buy it up from them, and give it back to them as a rental property, she says. Capital, she adds, is still scarce for poor and black Memphians. Micah, like much of the neighborhood's other activism, began after 2015 when Darius Stewart, a black teenager, was killed by Memphis police on New Direction Church grounds after an altercation with an officer. A Department of Justice civil rights investigation determined there wasn't enough evidence to charge the officer. 
The death of Mr. Nichols was another painful moment for the community. It was a reminder to, quote, keep our foot on the gas pedal in terms of justice work, Ms. Dr. Spencer says. It's like the biblical book of Ezekiel, where it says, quote, and that place that used to lie in ruins will now be called the Garden of Eden. Oscar nominee's message. Democracy is worth fighting for. As the world grapples with the democratic recession, Oscar-nominated Argentina 1985 offers a glimmer of hope. Democracies work because average citizens make them work. Simon. By Erica Page, staff writer. Buenos Aires. In November 1976, eight months into a military dictatorship, Graciela Lois's husband disappeared. A month later, nursing their three-month-old daughter, she joined other spouses, siblings, and parents searching for missing loved ones. Collecting evidence of the dictatorship's atrocities was dangerous, heartbreaking work. Over the next seven years, an estimated 30,000 individuals would disappear, many tortured and murdered in clandestine detention centers across Argentina. Quote, we all felt fear, says Miss Louise, but it came second to wanting to know the truth. On Sunday, the drama that portrays their real-life courage, Argentina 1985, is up for an Academy Award in the International Feature Film category. The movie, which leans heavily on actual events that unfolded in 1985, takes place only two years into Argentina's fledgling democracy. For the first time in history, a civil court condemned and prosecuted a military dictatorship for its crimes, and it was made possible by victims like Miss Louise, daring prosecutors, and a ragtag team that took great personal risks to ensure democracy prevailed. In an era of, quote, democratic recession, where faith in democracy is faltering worldwide, the film is hitting a chord in Argentina and abroad with those who believe democracy is still worth fighting for. In 2022, 84% of people surveyed globally by Watchdog Freedom House said democracy is important for their country, but only 56% said they lived in a democratic country. Argentina 1985 offers a poignant reminder. Democracies don't stand on their own, but require courageous commitment from all. Quote, it's not about choosing some official that's going to make the decisions and tell us what democracy looks like, says Miss Louise. Quote, it means collaborating and committing, not waiting and watching as a spectator. She celebrates the film, but says it's not for people like her, who lived through the terrors of that dark period, but instead for the younger generations who may need a reminding about what is required of citizens for democracy to thrive. Quote, democracies work, she says, but they work because we make them work. The Cost of Freedom Argentina has a strong track record of producing winning films about its dictatorship. But most, like The Secret in Their Eyes, which won an Oscar in 2010, focus on the horrors of the dirty war. Santiago Mitre's Argentina 1985, available in theaters here since September, digs into the aftermath. What stands out is the humanity of its remarkably ordinary protagonists. Instead of seasoned human rights activists or politicians, the film's heroes are civil servants, youth, victims, and family members of the disappeared, who suddenly find themselves responsible for holding leaders of the dictatorship to account. Their resolve earned the movie a nine-minute standing ovation during its premiere at the Venice Film Festival. In the movie, as in real life, Argentines had little reason to trust their new democracy in 1985. 
The previous democratic government had lasted a mere three years before the military took over, so it's perhaps unsurprising that the chief prosecutor, Julio Stracera, played in the film by Ricardo Darín, at first doesn't want any part in prosecuting the dictatorship's most powerful military officers. He goes on to head up what would become the world's first truth commission. He and his deputy, who heralds from a family with deep military ties, turn to a loyal band of helpers in their early 20s who don't have careers to put on the line. They traverse the country collecting evidence for the trial. One of these young figures is played by Leila Becara. The casting crew for Argentina 1985 discovered her on Instagram. She graduated into the pandemic with a degree in political science and began posting videos about politics on social media. In preparation for her role, Ms. Bacara interviewed the real people who helped Mr. Strasera collect evidence back in 1985, and she was struck by what she calls their, quote, courageous innocence. These weren't revolutionaries. Quote, but they were certain that something had to be done, she says. Sometimes it's necessary for there to be a group of people who are naive enough to believe that things really can change, because that's the way they do change. What worries her in Argentina today is the despair, or worse, the apathy she sees among peers who have grown disillusioned with the political system. Ms. Bacara says the movie creates space for tough conversations. Quote, it's motivating because there's a history behind you. There is someone who faced worse monsters. On a recent Wednesday evening, the movie is not over, but a downtown Buenos Aires movie theater breaks out in triumphant applause, along with spectators in the on-screen courtroom following the closing arguments. When the theater lights come up, viewer Norberto Nafieri is flush with emotion, thinking back to 1985 when he was 14 years old. He says the veil of terror from the dictatorship lasted into the 1990s. Quote, young people today don't know how costly their freedom was, Mr. Vafieri says. Some do. Aliona, who left Russia for Buenos Aires when the war in Ukraine began, saw the film with a group of Russians also opposed to the war. She cried throughout. Quote, the movie gives me hope that nothing is forever, she says, giving only her first name out of fear of retribution for speaking out against Russia. No dictatorship is forever. Things can change, and there can be justice. Never easy. The 1985 trial of the Juntas was a first step for democracy, but the fight for truth and justice didn't end there. The dictatorship garnered significant support among the middle class, many of whom were unaware or in denial of its crimes. Were it not for the efforts of organizations like Familiares, of which Miss Louise is still a key member, and collective memory sites, including former detention centers, Argentina's history could have been swept under the rug. Indeed, when Guillermo Rodolfo Perez Roysenblatt learned in 2000 that the family who raised him were not blood relatives, that he had been born to kidnapped parents in Buenos Aires's most infamous clandestine detention center, he knew little about the dictatorship. His supposed father was in the Air Force, his high school on a military base. Since his biological grandmothers, both part of the Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo, found him, he has given hundreds of talks nationwide about the human rights abuses that shaped his life. He sees Argentina 1985 as a powerful tool for historic understanding, combating the ignorance he still encounters today. Quote, Every time I tell my story, no matter how many times I've told it, it touches another fiber, says Mr. Perez Rosenblatt, whose biological parents remain missing. Quote, it has never been easy, but it has always been necessary. Argentina 1985 is available on Amazon Prime Video. 
The film in Spanish with English subtitles is rated R for language. Points of progress. What's going right? Preserving the forests from Ecuador to California. In our progress roundup, cooperation in the Americas between indigenous peoples and authorities is preserving forests, from policies against logging to use of controlled burns. And in Uganda, some endangered species are rebounding after decades of increased conservation. Simon. By Nick Roll, contributor. 1. United States. Indigenous women are learning about controlled burns based on traditional native practices and current natural resource management. To close the gender gap in wildfire management, the first prescribed fire training exchange, TREX, targeting women, was held in 2016. The Karuk tribe hosted a session in the Klamath Mountains last October for 50 indigenous women from the United States, Canada, and Australia. Before its land was appropriated in the mid-19th century, the Karuk tribe inhabited more than a million acres that spanned today's northern California into Oregon. Karuk women were charged with managing fire on lands closest to home. The U.S. recently returned 1,031 acres to the Karuk tribe, and a co-stewardship agreement with the Forest Service gives Karuk residents more space and authority to manage land through controlled burns. The threat of unmanaged forests is not hypothetical. In 2020, the Slater fire killed two people and destroyed 150 Karuk homes. Indigenous trainees also learned about native cultural burns to care for food resources and other plants. Quote, getting that fire on the ground is like starting to heal a scar, said participant Analia Hillman. It helps our wounds heal through the first stage of fire. Source, the Arizona Republic. 2. Ecuador. A new nature preserve protects 3,057,671 acres of Andean and Amazonian forests. Ecosystems protected by the Taramiat Pujutai Nunca Reserve range from cloud forests and sandstone plateaus to Amazonian lowlands and floodplain forests. There are more than a thousand species of birds as well as jaguars and spectacled bears that call the area home. Nearly 200,000 people, mostly indigenous, live in the province where the reserve is located. They had long expressed concern about the creeping influx of mining, logging, and cattle ranching in the region. The provincial government worked closely with nearly 900 residents of four indigenous communities to ensure native residents' sustainable ancestral use of one of the Amazon's largest protected areas. Sources, Mongabe, Nature and Culture International. 3. France. It's becoming easier for children to report abuse. The nonprofit Association Le Papillon installs and monitors mailboxes in schools and sports clubs for children to express problems they're facing, ranging from bullying to sexual violence. The invitation to write creates a safe buffer for children who may not want to talk directly to an adult. About 21% of the letters point to physical abuse and 7% sexual abuse, and the notes have led to arrests and alleged crimes that experts warn might otherwise have gone unreported. Children are encouraged to sign their names to facilitate follow-up by adults. Laurent Boyd, a p- police officer who started the campaign, was a victim of sexual assault as a child. While expanding the number of mailboxes, he is also working to end the statute of limitations for child abuse. Quote, I know from having been a victim myself, the aggressor forbids children to speak, but no one tells you that you cannot write. And writing, you can do it quietly in your bedroom. Sources, the Associated Press, reasons to be cheerful. 4. Uganda. 
The populations of elephants, giraffes, rhinos, and other vulnerable and endangered species in Uganda are on the rebound. After northern white and eastern black rhinos were hunted into local extinction in the early 1980s, a charity reintroduced four rhinos in 2005, and through breeding in a private sanctuary, there are now 32. Elephants are up about 400% to 7,975, and giraffes grew nearly sixfold to 2,072, both due to increased conservation efforts over four decades, according to the Uganda Wildlife Authority, UWA. Political conflict and poaching under a lack of law enforcement led to massive drops in animal populations from the 1960s to the 1980s. The International Union for Conservation of Nature called for more protection of wildlife on private property, and the UWA said more work is necessary to help species such as lions and chimpanzees. But Uganda is home to more than half of the world's mountain gorillas, and the UWA also said their numbers are growing. Sources. Reuters. Agence France Press. 5. India. Access to running water is increasing in rural areas. Nearly 57% of rural Indian households now have working taps that provide at least 55 liters, 14.5 gallons, of potable water a day year-round. With a goal of 100% coverage by 2024, the national initiative was launched in 2019 when only 17% had tap water. Regular access to running water relieves families, mostly women and girls, from hauling and transporting water from wells, which means more people are able to attend school or work. A survey found that households received service for an average of three hours a day, and more than 90% of schools and child care centers are getting potable water, but higher than acceptable levels of chlorine were often reported. Sources, Financial Express, The Hindu. The Monitor's View, Venezuela's Latent Civic Reserves, by the Monitor's Editorial Board. Ten years ago, Venezuela had the fourth largest economy in Latin America, anchored by the largest oil reserves in the world. Since then, its economy has collapsed by more than 86%. More than one in five Venezuelans have left, forced by economic hardship, persecution, or criminal violence to seek freedom and opportunity elsewhere. The exodus is an oft-cited measure of the misrule of socialist autocrat President Nicolas Maduro. Yet the flip side of that picture reveals another story. Nearly 80% of Venezuelans have stayed put, reflecting in part an expectation among many that justice and equality will return. Quote, The Venezuelan case is an example of a country where democratic forces refuse to die, Amherst College political scientist Javier Corrales said in an America's Society Council of the Americas podcast. Quote, And this has meant that autocracy hasn't really consolidated. There is a story here of hope, that is, the resilience of democratic forces in Venezuela. The resiliency has lasted a long time. In 2013, Mr. Maduro inherited the rule of the late Hugo Chavez, as well as an economy kept aloft with petrodollars. A crash in oil prices then led him down a harsh autocratic path. A 2018 presidential election resulted in an awkward political cleft. Mr. Maduro claimed victory. Parliament declared his rival, Juan Guiado, as a president, a move backed by nearly 60 countries and followed up with tougher economic sanctions. Yet last year, the winds shifted. A new leftist government in neighboring Colombia espoused engagement with Venezuela over isolation. The war in Ukraine sent the West in search of new petroleum. International recognition of Mr. Guiado has fallen off. 
the Biden administration enabled Chevron to resume limited oil production in Venezuela. Talks hosted by Mexico between the government and the opposition parties restarted last fall to prepare for elections next year. Backed by his patrons, Cuba, Russia, and China, Mr. Maduro now seems to be enjoying a new lease. But autocrats have a way of revealing their weaknesses. In January, he pitched new legislation effectively criminalizing civil society organizations and further curbing freedom of speech and assembly. It isn't hard to see why. The hope of elections has added to popular demands for change. The Venezuelan Observatory of Social Conflicts, a human rights watchdog, counted 1,262 protests during the first 42 days of 2023, a 136% increase over the same period a year ago. Teachers and trade unionists have turned out in swelling protests. Quote, this time we've lost our fear, one protester told Bloomberg. Such sentiments are echoed in a new book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator, by Filipino-American journalist and Nobel laureate Maria Ressa. Quote, I refuse to live in a world like this, she wrote. I demand better. We deserve better. Mr. Maduro may be emerging from international isolation, but his people demand a just and equitable society. By that measure, he has already been handed defeat. A Christian Science Perspective To Love an Enemy by Evan Mellenbacher When the Ukraine-Russia war began, my heart sank. Quote, The world doesn't need another war, I protested. I was distressed by the developing scenes of armed conflict, but even more by a ruler who seemed to wield massive influence over a large population. As I prayed for spiritual insight on how to be a healing influence, Jesus Christ's admonition, quote, love your enemies, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, came roaring to my attention. How to implement it practically, though, was a tough question. As I considered what I knew about how Jesus handled evil, it became apparent that his counsel to love our enemies was not an instruction to overlook evil acts. Jesus did not ignore evil. He faced it fearlessly and defeated it with his understanding of God's power. He saved multitudes of people from suffering by removing the influence of sin, disease, and death from their lives. He saved himself from those intent on destroying him. Love, according to Jesus, did not mean ignoring evil, but annihilating it. Quote, God is love, one New Testament author wrote. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The love Jesus preached, lived, and demonstrated was the love of God. This love is far more than positive thoughts and kind gestures. It is a divine power, the power of God at work, maintaining justice and upholding divine rights to health, happiness, and life. Regarding the world scene, I saw that when Jesus taught us to love our enemies, he was telling us to see the power of God at work right where an enemy appears to be at work. He was not teaching avoidance, but engagement with the love of God so mightily that whatever evil an enemy was devising, the love of God would dissolve that enemy's threat. We can find evidence that this healing method works in Jesus' response to the Roman ruler Pilate, who was interrogating him before the crucifixion. Pilate threatened Jesus with the question, quote, Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? The threat Pilate posed to Jesus' physical well-being was obvious. But Jesus replied, quote, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. New Living Translation. He was not intimidated by Pilate's threat. He didn't get angry, fearful, or resentful. He calmly replied to Pilate with a spiritual truth about God's government. In that moment, wasn't he loving Pilate with an impersonal spiritual love that stripped Pilate of any claim to influence?
God was the only power at work, and Jesus' understanding of the supremacy of good over evil empowered him to triumph and walk out of the tomb alive three days later. The omnipotence of God had and has the final say. We can put Jesus' example into practice today. To love our enemies is to be so clear that God is the only power that we are not intimidated by any claim of evil as having power. It is to prove the ultimate reality of the universe, that love, God, is all in all, and that evil has no position to occupy under God's government. As light eliminates darkness anywhere light shines, the omnipresence of love eliminates the perception of evil. Love knows no other authority, no other cause. In the omnipresence of love, there is no enemy to fear, to fret over, to resent. Mary Baker Eddy wrote, quote, Evil has no reality. It is neither person, place, nor thing, but it is simply a belief, an illusion of material sense. Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, page 71. Evil appears to be acting as a person committing evil deeds, but in truth, God never created a person capable of acting out evil. It's never a person that needs to be destroyed, but the evil they were acting out. And evil is eliminated by a consciousness and demonstration of God's omnipresence and omnipotence. We can trust the experience of our, quote, enemy to the wisdom and care of divine love, which always knows the best way to inspire and bring out reform. Whether facing a threatening political leader, a domineering boss, or an intimidating family member, the same rule of love your enemies applies. Jesus' admonition to love our enemies is not about turning a blind eye to evil. It's about bearing witness to the all-power of God. Christ Jesus taught us to love our enemies because he knew that was the only way to be rid of them. In a consciousness of love, there is only omni-active love to know and experience. Adapted from an article published in the February 6, 2023 issue of the Christian Science Sentinel. Viewfinder. Top of the world. An indigenous Aymara woman takes delight in taking a spin with a wooden top, a feature in a number of Bolivian games, amid activities marking the founding of the city of El Alto, Bolivia, on March 5, 2023. El Alto, the Heights in Spanish, was given separate political status from the adjacent city of La Paz on this day in 1985. It is the highest major city in the world with an elevation of more than 13,000 feet and has a population of roughly 1 million people, most of whom are indigenous. A Look Ahead by Simon Motlake, reporter. Thanks for joining us. Please come back tomorrow when we'll have a story from Gambia, where a child-friendly report helps students understand their country's past and create a better future. And now miscellaneous articles. First Look. This is just unreal. California deals with epic snowfall. Just three months ago, virtually all of California was in a drought, but recent storms have dumped enough snow to shut down highways and ski resorts and trapped residents in their homes. Low groundwater levels, however, persist. By John Ensack, Associated Press, March 3, 2023, Los Angeles. Tremendous rains and snowfall since late last year have freed half of California from drought, but low groundwater levels remain a persistent problem, the United States Drought Monitor data showed Thursday. The latest survey found that moderate or severe drought covers about 49% of the state. Nearly 17% of the state is free of drought or in a condition described as abnormally dry. The remainder is still abnormally dry. Quote, clearly the amount of water that's fallen this year has greatly alleviated the drought, said Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles. 
Quote, it has not ended the drought completely, but we're in a very different place than we were a year ago. California's latest drought began in 2020, and no relief appeared in sight heading into this winter. Three months ago, virtually all of California was in drought, including at extreme and exceptional levels. Water agencies serving millions of people, agriculture, and industry were told to expect only a fraction of requested allocations. The turnabout began with a series of atmospheric rivers that pounded the state from late December through mid-January, building a huge Sierra Nevada snowpack, causing flooding, toppling trees, and smashing the coast with extreme surf. Water authorities began boosting allocations, and after a few largely dry weeks, powerful storms with Arctic air returned in February, creating epic vistas of white-capped mountains while shutting down highways and ski resorts and burying communities in enough snow to collapse roofs. The drought monitor shows three regions have received the most benefit from copious precipitation, including snowfall measured in feet rather than inches. The central Sierra and foothills are now free of drought or abnormal dryness for the first time since January 2020, the drought monitor said. The central coast from Monterey Bay to Los Angeles County is also now drought-free, along with two counties on the far north coast. I've never seen anything like it anywhere. Although the snowfall could help to restore groundwater levels, above-ground residents are dealing with the immediate effects. At David and Kelly Gora's home in Big Bear Lake, the snow on the roof is now touching the snow on the ground. They shoveled a small area to let their dogs go outside, but are mostly hunkered down. Quote, We've been through some big storms, but this is just unreal, David Gora said. I've never seen anything like it anywhere. Anthony Simino said he's been snowed in for about a week in the mountain community of Running Springs. He finally managed to clear his decks, but not for long. Quote, I woke up this morning and there was another two and a half feet on them, he said. It was kind of like Groundhog Day. Residents of these towns are grappling with so much snow they're running out of space to put it. Clearing one area adds heaps to another. Grocery shelves had run bare of some items like bread and were running low on eggs and milk Tuesday. Cars remained buried under snow and roads closed. Governor Gavin Newsom on Wednesday proclaimed a state of emergency in San Bernardino and 12 other counties to support disaster relief by making state agencies and aid available and asking for federal help in clearing and repairing highways. The governor announced that the state was bringing in more snowplows and road crews to help clear roads, and he authorized the California National Guard to mobilize for disaster response if needed. Full recovery from drought still to come. Quote, the rain has improved California soil moisture and stream flow levels, while the snow has increased mountain snowpack to much above normal levels, the drought monitor said. Most California reservoirs have refilled with water levels near or above average, but groundwater levels remain low and may take months to recover. As of Thursday, the water content of the Sierra snowpack, which provides about a third of California's water, was 170% of the historical average on April 1st, when it is normally at its peak, according to the State Department of Water Resources. Department officials plan to conduct a Sierra snow measurement on Friday and hold a briefing on how the remaining month of California's traditional snow season will impact the state's water supplies. Mr. Swain said the snowpack could become the largest ever observed in parts of California. The outlook calls for a continuing wet pattern, particularly for northern parts of the state, and more feet of snow, he said. Quote, if we can get through the rest of the season without any more roof collapses or snowmelt floods, it will be quite a boon, Mr. Swain said.
the snowpack potentially could face threats such as early heat waves or, as some forecast models have hinted, a warm atmospheric river that could cause melting and flooding. Mr. Swain said California is expected to remain cold and the likelihood of the atmospheric river is very low. Quote, I think that snowpack is going to take well through the summer to melt, and some shaded patches might still be there next autumn, he said. While reservoirs have been filling from shockingly low levels, recovery has not been uniform as demonstrated by the state's two largest water storage facilities. Lake Oroville, 65 miles north of Sacramento, is at 73% of capacity. 116 percent of average to date. Another 90 miles north, Lake Shasta is only 60 percent full, 84 percent of average to date. Mr. Swain said he expects Shasta to get good inflows during snowmelt season because the snowpack there is slightly above average, although not exceptional. The U.S. Drought Monitor is a joint project of the National Drought Mitigation Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This story was reported by the Associated Press, AP writers Amy Taxon in Orange County, California, Ben Philly in Norfolk, Virginia, Terry Tang and Walter Berry in Arizona, and Trisha Ahmed in St. Paul, Minnesota contributed to this report. In a word, can irony really be conveyed with punctuation? For centuries, wordsmiths have demanded punctuation marks that would convey irony and sarcasm the way verbal intonation does in spoken conversation. By Casey Fed. Copy Desk Editor, March 3, 2023. Punctuation only gets the spotlight when it misses the mark. Writers rely on punctuation to communicate important cues to readers. Without it, writers risk rambling, misplacing a subject's prized possession, or even facing a lawsuit, as was the situation in 2014 for Oakhurst Dairy in Maine over a missing Oxford comma. So in honor of National Punctuation Day, let's explore some forgotten punctuation. For centuries, wordsmiths have demanded punctuation marks that would convey irony and sarcasm in written text, much like verbal intonation or facial expressions do in spoken conversation. But tipping off readers to phrases with meanings beyond or even opposite to what is written has proved challenging. In the mid-1600s, British philosopher John Wilkins penned the first irony mark, an upside-down exclamation point appropriately resembling a lowercase i, which, quote, both hints at the implied irony and suggest the inversion of its meaning, says author Keith Houston. Quote, committing verbal irony to paper is fraught with difficulty for both writer and reader, he writes, in Shady Characters, The Secret Life of Punctuation, Symbols, and Other Typographical Marks. So punctuating such sentences in this way seemed on point. Others agreed. Around 1900, French poet Alcantar de Bram introduced a whip-like backward question mark at the start of sentences as a warning to readers that a change of tone followed. But this point the irony, or irony point, may have been a step too far, as its placement spoiled the surprise. This piece of punctuation, however, was an interesting follow-up to one by 16th century English printer Henry Denham. His reversed question mark served as an end punctuation for rhetorical questions and was fittingly dubbed the percontination point. The irony mark turned out to be a smashing success. By the 2000s, there was a heightened demand for conveying irony and sarcasm in writing. Enter the snark mark. The list of ironists is hard to pin down, but Slate's Josh Greenman, 
resurrected the upside-down exclamation point, and topographer Charles Cunningham, among others, suggested using a period followed by a tilde to tell readers that a sentence would be read beyond its literal meaning. The period tilde had potential because it was easily rendered by typographers, unlike the irony marks of yore, which may explain their absence today. All this is to say that punctuation has its purpose. It demands respect, proper implementation, and praise. It's just too bad we don't have any current forms of snark marks. The article ends with a blushing, smiling emoji. Casey Fed is the Monitor's copy desk editor. In a word columnist, Melissa Moore is on sabbatical. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Science Monitor. My name is Katie Singleton. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.